Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where today we have a transatlantic episode for you. Uh, always excited to do these ones, but we are talking to a Canadian who is over in Edinburgh talking about a new book, Live at the Cellar, Vancouver's Iconic Jazz Club and the Canadian Cooperative Jazz Scene in the 1950s and 60s. Fresh book just off the presses from our friends over at UBC Press. It's Marion Jago. Marion, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much. Uh, always excited to have folks from overseas here. You are a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and for a, 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 I was going to say formerly a Canadian, which, uh, of course, that's not true, uh, but originally uh, from Canada. Yeah, originally from Canada. Grew up outside of Vancouver, uh, did my undergraduate degree at Dalhousie, and my postgraduate degrees, or graduate degrees, as they call them in that country, um, at York, and oh, then moved uh-huh. to the UK about four years ago now. My first post was at the University of Leeds, and I'm brand spanking fresh at Edinburgh. I just got here in September. Oh, wow. So, book out, a new, new uh, institution, a lot going on uh, at the same time. Uh, and you were actually here, uh, as we're recording this last week, uh, traipsing all over the country. Yeah, it was kind of neat. I got to do, uh, felt tiny bit like a rock star or jazz star. <laughs> I, I got to do a, um, a book launch sort of tour for the book. It was important to me to try to construct some opportunities to say thank you to the musicians that helped make the book possible and to kind of insert or or have music accompany the idea of a of a book launch that whole adage about dancing about architecture so i was fortunate in um, being able to go out west we had a book launch at neptune records in vancouver and a book launch at frankie's jazz club where uh, the bob bruff quartet played and and i got up and said a few things and terry clark who's in the book a lot was uh, the drummer on that gig so that worked out really well and then went out to Toronto, where I spoke at my uh, my old university, York University. And uh, then we had another musical launch at the Pilot, which has got this really fantastic long-running jazz series on Saturday afternoons, which is free and it's astounding the caliber of the musicians that play there regularly. Um, and again, Terry Clark was in the band there, a quartet fronted by Mike Murley. And then the following day, uh, just before getting on an airplane, I did a, a talk at the Toronto Reference Library. Yeah, so really all over the place <laughs> and a busy week. Uh, and so I appreciate you taking the time because you're you know, traipsing all over this country then flying back across the ocean. You must be exhausted. Yeah, the jet lag's been pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so let's get into the book here, Live at the Cellar. What prompted this for you? Obviously, you have to be a, a jazz fan to, to get into this, but why look at the jazz scene during the 50s and 60s? Well, I mean, I am, I'm, I'm a jazz fan and a jazz scholar and researcher, I guess. I also sort of used to work a bit within the Canadian jazz scene. I was the uh, producer and co-artistic director of the Atlantic Jazz Festival for a few years, Jazz East as it's known, out in Halifax, and I knew a lot of people on the scene. It just became clear that these cooperative scenes that I knew about in isolation. I sort of knew about the one in Vancouver, and then when I ended up living out in Halifax, I found out that there had been another one out there at around the same time and began to get a sense of who the players that had been involved in these cooperative scenes were and the impact that they'd had on the development of jazz in Canada following the closure of those clubs. And I just thought it was really important to to make a point of highlighting this for people. I mean, yeah, it helps to be a jazz fan to read the book, but... I also would 
hope that you don't have to be. I mean, for every seven, for, for every Miles Davis, there's, you know, 75 other jazz musicians whose names you don't know. Right. And I think that, uh, well, you know, at, at a minimum, maybe 750 jazz musicians whose names you don't know. And I think in Canada, that gets a bit exacerbated. You know, most people on the street wouldn't know the names of the most, air quotes, famous Canadian jazz musicians. So they're certainly not going to know the names of, of some of the guys that, that, that never got to record commercially. And, but the impact that this kind of self-organizing musical communities had um, has been kind of profound. So let's get into that self-organization part of it, because I think, at least for people on the outside like me, who look at the music industry as very competitive and very, very cutthroat, where people are stepping all over each other to get to the top. And to have a book like this where you're talking about a cooperative scene where people are working together, certainly there's collaboration, but I, I often think of collaboration in music in terms of the actual music and people creating songs together and the behind-the-scenes stuff. Because, I mean, you see documentaries and read books about at least you know the big famous artists who are a lot of them are pretty cutthroat and frankly they seem like bad people so you know i'm surprised to see this cooperative scene so how do we understand this scene and how does it develop in an industry that at least from the outside perspective this would not be expected Part of it's the, the nature of jazz. I mean, even jazz music within the industry, the Miles Davises of the world, I mean, it, it barely resonates. Every time you read about the state of the jazz recording industry, we get to find out that it's 1% or 2% of uh, records sold or audiences for commercially recorded music. So I think that that's certainly part of it. Um, within Canada at the time, and I mean, it's hard sometimes, I think, to sort of stop and take a deep breath and think back to what the reality of things was like in Canada following World War II. There was no commercial jazz industry whatsoever. There was essentially no domestic recording for jazz. Some Canadian jazz artists did. I mean, Oscar Peterson did, but he was recording for Verve uh, essentially as an American by that point. He had moved down to the States. Some Canadian artists like Phil Nimmons did get to do some recording. Uh, he recorded for RCA, but these were incredibly rare exceptions. So there was no sense in Vancouver in 1955 that you could go on and become famous as a jazz musician or that you could have a recording career or that there was an industry to participate in. So I think that certainly helped. And because there was no industry to participate in, they had to create spaces to play and they had to create spaces to learn. And they essentially had to create a scene in order to participate in it. So what was the access then to it? Like, if I'm a musician, how do I then access that community? The, the, the story in short was uh, following World War II in Vancouver uh, in the 1950s. So we've got sort of developments in jazz, what we would now call modern jazz or sort of things following bebop. Um, there were places in the city. Popular culture was very jazz inflected at the time. So there were a lot of places to go and dance to big bands. There were a lot of places that had um, sort of nightclub floor shows where there would be musical accompaniment of a variety of sorts. So things were jazz inflected in a lot of ways without necessarily being jazz. Um, but there weren't a lot of musical jobs, and those jobs that were taken were generally by uh, older musicians. So it was hard for younger guys to get a look in. They had to sort of wait till uh, a chair became available. There was only one real late night jam space called the penthouse, 
But again, the guys that had been playing in these uh, in the studio scene and on that sort of downtown nightclub scene were very accomplished musicians. So they got most of the the spots at sort of the the late night jamming that would occur. But these young musicians were aware they were purchasing records, most of which had to be ordered in. They were listening to the radio. They understood what was going on, and they needed to to create a space to play. So originally, they about a dozen of them pooled their money and rented a house uh, in the suburbs of Vancouver and used that as a space to sort of hang out and work on things. Uh, and that got really popular. People would bring their friends, and it was a nice space to hang out. Uh, the building got crushed by a tree in a windstorm, so they had to move. Uh, and at that point, they had already begun to think, well, you know what, this is really popular. There are people here that actually want to come and listen to us. Maybe we could do something a little bit bigger with this. So they rented a, a, a cellar space um, on East Broadway in Vancouver, and it sort of took off from there. And one of the things that really helped it, so you have no space to really go and uh, sit and listen to, air quotes, modern jazz in Vancouver at this period. You've got a group of young musicians really keen on developing themselves and, and, and playing and creating opportunities. And at the same time, Vancouver's got these very archaic liquor laws where most clubs operate as bottle clubs. It's really, really difficult to get a liquor license. And it's very difficult for um, women to go and hang out um, and have a drink or, or go and hang out with their girlfriends. It's essentially impossible to do that. So all of these things kind of link together to help make the cellar this really attractive social space. Interesting music, a sort of welcoming space to go down and take a bottle and um, they, they would sell uh, what, what, what were called setups, mixers. You would go and buy some Coke and ice or some 7-Up and ice. Uh, you could go down there as a single woman. You could go down there as a woman with a bunch of girlfriends and not have to worry about fighting by all of the, the strange rules that, um, that dictated what could and could not be done in cocktail lounges. And as a musician, you could go and listen to great players, and if you practice hard, you would be able then to sort of join in and have a, have a space to work on your craft. So it was very much a meritocracy. I don't know, is that, is that a fair way to put it in terms of the access? Because it, it seems like in the way you describe that, it's sort of half talent, half who you know. Uh, yeah, very much. Both of those things. I mean, life is very much both of yeah, those things. That's true. Um, there are two levels of membership. So charter membership, generally speaking, that group of musicians was anywhere between six or 20. It kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. And those people would take on added responsibilities. So they would share the rent. They would uh, submit um, post-dated checks to whoever the, the elected manager was at the time uh, and made sure that the lights were turned on, cleaned the club, made sure that the, the sandwiches, they sold sort of sandwiches and pizzas, made sure that that was made, made sure that the whatever deliveries needed to be done uh, were handled, dealt with, dealing with the musicians union. And in exchange for, for that sort of risk and responsibility, they had keys to the space and were able to use it uh, to practice and to sort of, um, a little bit as a clubhouse, I guess, but, but largely to, to practice. The other level of membership was called uh, social membership, and this was basically um, the audience. So you would pay a couple of bucks a year to be a member that would allow you to pay the cover charge and you could then sign in guests. Um, and by being a private members club, this was one of the ways they were able to work on uh, having a, a relationship with the union that enabled musicians to pay for less than scale. Uh, and it also was a way to en uh, enable the landlord basically to let them run a music club. So would that have ramifications in terms of alcohol as well in terms of what they could sell i mean or sell or have people consume it seems like just having it as a private club there's so much more freedom in terms of what you can do there was i mean they sold uh like i said setups so mixers 
alcohol was essentially prohibited in spaces like this in Vancouver at the time. So they were intermittently raided by the, uh, the, the liquor police, as was just about every establishment in Vancouver. I talk about there's, I think, an entire chapter in the book dedicated to sort of the, the ins and outs of the liquor laws. It wasn't until the late 1960s that most places in Vancouver ceased being what's known as a bottle club. The panorama roof of the Hotel Vancouver was a bottle club. The Commodore was a bottle club. It was just too difficult and too costly to obtain a, a, a legal liquor license. The one club that tried and sort of successfully uh, achieved a liquor license um, found that the number of rules that that placed on how they could uh, run their business um, nearly nearly bankrupted them. So there there was no sort of public sale of alcohol at the cellar. If you went to the cellar, you would bring in your own little fifth of whiskey or a bottle of gin or whatever it is you wanted to consume. So that would speak to then the benefits, of course, of being that private club because otherwise, yeah, they can't sell it, but they're also not going to get mad if you have it. Exactly, but but like I said, the, the non-private clubs did that. So right. kind of roof of the Hotel Vancouver, which was the uh, the number one place to go dancing in Vancouver. The Dal Richards Orchestra was the house band for decades. People would bring in their own alcohol there and would be buying setups um, at the swankiest dance hall in town. When it looked like the liquor cops were coming, they would get tipped off and Dal Richards most very famously would have the band play Roll Out the Barrel and that was the sign to the audience that you needed to these long tablecloths at the Commodore Ballroom and the tablecloths were designed so that you could slip a fifth inside them. So this wasn't, what the seller was doing was not unique in Vancouver necessarily in terms of uh, the relationship to alcohol. What sort of people then are participating as social members who would be coming with that bottle just to listen to the music? And why would they pay this annual fee in order to be able to pay a cover charge to go listen to it. Who so who is the market for this? Well again, you gotta sort of think back to what was happening in society and culture in the mid nineteen fifties. So we're heading into the nineteen sixties where everybody's sort of aware of the counterculture, but we got there through changes in attitudes in the nineteen fifties. So there had been no place to play modern jazz. There was no place that really catered to people who were interested in other um so we say slightly left of center artistic endeavors. So people that were interested in um, avant-garde theater or in changes in literature, you know, what one might later on describe as sort of beat poetry or beat literature, changes in modern dance, changes in painting. All of these people who were, you know, I guess maybe age 30 or, or younger, who were coming of age in this post-war period, the people that we'll end up going on to call the, the baby boomers, um, found in the cellar kind of a clubhouse for countercultural interests. And it's really uh, important to note that the cellar registered itself not just as a jazz club, but it was registered as a not-for-profit society under the name the Cellar Musicians and Artists Association. And it was really important to them from the very beginning that the cellar be something of a nexus for everybody interested in the arts, not just people who were only interested in jazz. Well, does that mean then that some of the performances were not just with jazz and not maybe just musical? Were, was there a political element to it? Or, or even was there visual art on the wall that people could sell? Like, how, how broad does it get when you talk about these interests that are bringing these people together? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, things weren't overtly political, I think being active in these kind of uh, artistic endeavors were, were somewhat political in and of themselves. But yeah, the, um, some of the, the founding members were visual artists and not musicians. Um, there was a giant 
mural as you went down the stairs, painted by Frank Lewis, who's an important Canadian muralist, and Harry Webb donated a, a painting called The Trio, which is reproduced in the book, and that hung behind the bar. Uh, and really, quite famously, under the uh, the guidance of, of Al Neal, who was a piano player at the club, but went on to be a very important Canadian artist in a variety of idioms, he encouraged the poetry readings to take place at the cellar, and also encouraged the, the staging of plays, uh, which usually took place either sort of in between the sets or sometimes before the music began. Um, and these were really interesting, again, plays that now we would probably take for granted uh, as being fairly mainstream. Samuel Beckett's play Endgame, which was a, a one-act play, which again is now considered quite mainstream. It's, it's on university course syllabuses. Um, but that was performed at the cellar about six months after its world premiere. So there was really a sense of having these different strands of the arts come together in the cellar as much as possible. But why then would it not be a broader club? Like, Why is it so associated with jazz if there's these other things going on with it? Because jazz was first and foremost the, the chief interest of, of the people that formed the club. Um, okay. And because... It really worked. There was a there was a market and appetite for for jazz within the city, and that's what the people that started the club were most interested in. There were musicians, non musicians as founding members, but they were jazz fans, which is why they were founding members. They weren't contributing to a club which was going to become a painting club. They were contributing right. to a club which was a jazz club because they were deeply interested in the music, but they also saw and had their interests recognized by the musicians. So within that scope, obviously, one of the things that comes up with jazz a lot, certainly in the American context, is the idea of race and how race plays into to the understanding of jazz music and the different types of jazz that there are. And so in the case of Vancouver, do, do these issues come up specifically, you know, 1950s, 1960s, where music is used a lot in the civil rights movement in the United States and, and jazz music is seen in a very different light than it was, say, in the 1920s and 1930s, once we get into the second half of the 20th century, do those racial issues come up within the cellar, not just in terms of the musicians, but maybe also the audience? Not really. I mean, I looked into this quite a bit when I was doing the research. Vancouver was a really stunningly white place at the time, more so than Montreal or Toronto or perhaps even Halifax. Census numbers are a little bit difficult to tease out, um, but I did my best. There weren't very many African-American or African-Canadian or black uh, participants at the cellar. There were a handful. There wasn't a sense of um, there being any sort of racial issue at the cellar. The members of the club were acutely aware that they were performing an art that was African-American in origin. They were acutely aware of the need and the desire to be inclusive and open to non-white players. In fact, I think they would have preferred more black players. They went out of their way to invite uh, American groups to come up and play. And most of the time, the groups that they were inviting were, were you know, African-American jazz groups. There was a bit of a division in Vancouver between, say, the Cellar Club and the things that took place in parts of the city versus some of the clubs. What would be considered now the east end of Vancouver, that was sort of where the bulk of Vancouver's black community was located. There's a very famous area called Hogan's Alley, and I write about that quite a lot in the book. But there was a club called the Harlem Nocturne, which was sort of the main club for blacks in town. And it's interesting that you said sort of the different types of jazz, because we had sort of the cellar playing um, bebop, 
influenced or bebop inflected modern jazz, um, and then later on via Al Neal and the auspices of, of, of his interests, some, some freer things, Ornette Coleman came up and played, for example. On the other side of town, in and around the Harlem Nocturne, you had a lot more of an emphasis upon R&B, more in the 60s than in the 50s. But there was a bit of a split between sounds of music um, and there was a bit of a split between where those black players played. They would have been welcome at the cellar, but many of them didn't take up the offer to play at the cellar. It's difficult to sort of tease out why that, that may have been or not been. But certainly race was not as big of an issue in Vancouver as it was in the States, or as it might have been in other parts of Canada with a larger black population. Well, but that's interesting, though, that they would be going to another place with a more R&B sound, maybe a Motown influence making its way up into Vancouver within that community. That is sort of a really interesting dynamic at play, again, given how associated jazz is internationally with black communities. And, yeah, and- absolutely. I mean, there were changes in, in the jazz scene as well, sort of the development of hard bop and, and soul jazz, and those kind of... Uh, musical gestures, I think, would have been more prominent in sort of that part of Vancouver around the Harlem Nocturne than they would have been uh, at the cellar, which was a bit more focused on, yeah, like I said, the very bebop-inflected versions of modern jazz. Right. So what does this tell us then about Vancouver as a city? I mean, certainly the Vancouver that we know today, uh, very different from the Vancouver of the 50s and 60s, if for no other reason that you could probably buy a house in the 50s or 60s in Vancouver and not have to be a millionaire to do so. But uh, how, how do we understand the cellar within the broader scope of Vancouver? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. That question was asked a couple of times over the past week, and I've sort of deferred to having some of the players that were on the scene answer that question. And people point to the cellar as being some sort of an indicator or an early aspect or, or, or element of Vancouver's developing sense of culture. I mean, to think of a city or to think of Vancouver as a place where you couldn't explore beat literature or bebop or free jazz or avant-garde theater is almost unthinkable now. But the space came into being because there was no place for sort of a subset of the population that had all of this energy and all of this interest and they needed to, to express it someplace. And the seller created or provided a space in which that could happen. And Vancouver's got this reputation for being really interdisciplinary in its arts organizations um, and a little bit weird <laughs> in the kind of music uh, that it specializes in. You know, it's it's got a reputation for having a really, really healthy free improvisation scene um, when it comes to music. It's got a reputation for having a really healthy and really interesting sort of mixed media scene. And a lot of that came out of the cellar and the people that intersected there. Were they then individuals who, I mean, you mentioned sort of this beat in a counterculture, they're and younger so where are they coming from? Are they people who are still living with their parents who are who who have middle class, upper class parents and then can afford to do this? Or are they people who are maybe more working class, who are looking for an outlet for a, a distinct culture in a place where they don't feel welcome? I don't know that they didn't feel welcome. I think that there was just no other space. So I, I don't right. think it was a sense of hostility from the city, but rather just a... Uh, Nobody really knew that they were there. I mean, it's an interesting question about class. I mean, the guys that started the cellar 
were by sort of the 60s a little bit older, and you had the development of additional clubs in Vancouver. It's interesting. The cellar came in to provide a space for musicians because no space for them existed. Then this takes off really well. And then you have slightly younger players like Terry Clark, who I mentioned a couple of times off the top of the show, mm-hmm. a really, really a talented uh, young drummer uh, in high school. You know, he's 15 and 16 years old, so he doesn't quite have the experience or the ability yet to go and play at the cellar, but he would go there and listen. And a group of musicians around about that age began another club called The Black Spot, which was initially a coffee house. And later on, it, it moved location and changed its name. It became The Flat Five and eventually ended up taking over from the cellar as being sort of the most important jazz club in town. So I never really investigated the, the class thing too much. I probably should have. But The Cellar didn't require you to have any money to participate, which I think was leveling. You could have come from a middle-class background and been at the cellar, but you wouldn't necessarily have had much of an advantage within that social context over the 16-year-old high school kid who had a paper route, uh, which is what Terry Clark had when he was going down to hear Charles Mingus play. So I think the DIY aspect of it and the democratic aspect of it acted as something of a leveler, but uh, I actually probably shouldn't confess this on a podcast, but hadn't <laughs> thought too much about the, the class aspect of things. Certainly musicians like Al Neal were, you know, decidedly w- working class. Al has been quite outspoken in his own novels about some of the difficulties that he's been through. Jim Kilburn, one of the other founding members of The Cellar, was uh, an electrician for the city of Vancouver. Most of the young musicians tried uh, rather desperately not to work very much because they wanted to to put all of their energy into playing. Um, at one point, Dave Quarren, who became the club's longtime manager, was working as an accountant uh, and ended up quitting that job in order to dedicate himself full-time to be the seller's manager, even though that meant a considerable pay cut. So this wasn't the kind of place where people were sort of um, musical dilettantes, if that makes any sense. No, yeah, it, it definitely makes uh, a lot of sense. And I find it interesting, too, you mentioned that a lot of the People who started early on were older and therefore would have lived through the Depression and the war. And for me, wondering about whether or not those experiences would lend themselves towards a cooperative organization and to be distrustful of perhaps the larger corporations and the, you know, having to go get a loan or whatever it is and just wanting to be more in control of their own fate and having therefore this cooperative setup would make a lot of sense given the experiences that they would have had uh, economically going into it and being able to support themselves or to be able to create a sustaining organization for the music, for the whole thing, this art form that they really care about. It it seems to me like the timing of that makes a lot of sense through the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, that's something else I I haven't actually stopped to consider. But yeah, I mean, certainly... The wartime experiences of, of some of the older members, like Tony Clithrow, who was in the RAF, and uh, Al Neal, who, who survived the beaches of Normandy, I think would have had some kind of a significant impact on the ways in which they wanted to participate within versus without the, uh, the system. But I suspect that this had more of an ideological influence or, or impact rather than an economic one. I mean, you have, to, you have to, none of the people that were 
instrumental in starting this club were thinking that it was going to do anything. Neither of them were think none of them were thinking that this was going to become something that was going to last a decade or something that was going to have a, a significant impact beyond their own immediate interests. I mean, it really was just a handful of young, very keen musicians so excited about playing and wanting to get better and needing to do something in order to make that happen. I really don't think that there was ever much sense of sort of looking too far in the future. There's some quotes in the book about the players being absolutely shocked when on opening weekend they had to turn people away uh, and absolutely shocked that after a year they still had some money in the bank and they could begin to do, you know, dream slightly bigger dreams in terms of bringing up American artists to, to, to play with. So it, it wasn't gone into with the sense of starting an organization. That's actually quite interesting because the way it's sort of discussed here and the way it's structured is you think of it as this larger thing, but without those grand dreams going in, that, that's sort of a fascinating thing that it goes through and it becomes that. And, and I guess it speaks to sort of the organic nature of art and that things can hit and really work out really well and you figure out the structure of it as you go. And that's certainly, a, for me at least, a stereotype of a lot of artists, especially you know, you use the word beatnik before, like a beatnik artist, that that's sort of what they do. They just say, hey, I like this, I'm interested in this, and let's see where it takes me. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot, how a lot of good jazz happens as well, you know. You get right. your head down and you just focus on what's right in front of you, and, and if you do that well enough, then things more often than not have a tendency to turn out okay. Uh, now, this book, of course, is about the club in Vancouver, but... There's also cooperative clubs existing elsewhere in the country, in Edmonton, the Yardbird Suite, the Halifax uh, 777 Barrington Street. These places also have cooperative elements to them and the structure of them. So how does the seller influence the national discussion on music, and how do we understand the Vancouver situation in the context of this national conversation that's going on? Well, I think it is an interesting way to sort of take stock of the sociocultural condition of Canada at the time. Because, yeah, you're right. So the seller comes along and is, is a good success, weirdly financially, but I'm, I'm mostly speaking about culturally and artistically. And this inspires uh, some young musicians in Edmonton. There's a drummer named Terry Hawkeye who comes out and visits the seller, and then he goes back to Edmonton and goes, wow, what they're doing there is amazing. We need something like this here. And they sort of map themselves onto the structure at the cellar, which they saw working so well. And they also rent themselves a basement suite. And initially they're only open on uh, Saturday nights and it's just an after hours thing for musicians when they get off their, uh, their, their, their paying gigs and the Ardbird suite slowly, slowly develops as well. It's not the same club that's in Edmonton now. So the Ardbird suite, the cooperative one, ceased to exist in 1967. In 1973, when the Edmonton Jazz Festival uh, is formed, they named their club the Ardbird suite in homage to what the, the, that, that club in their city had been. The Foggy Manor in Calgary is kind of linked to, to Edmonton. They're inspired by what's going on in, in Edmonton and in Vancouver, a very small pool of musicians, relatively speaking, in that city. Uh, and some of the musicians are shared, actually, between uh, Edmonton and Calgary, especially when it comes to uh, the big band that ends up um, uh, being put on there. And this becomes an interesting, very, very basic, very, very early Canadian uh, touring scene for jazz. So all of a sudden, you've got these three cities reasonably close, 
in 12 hours from Vancouver to Edmonton. It's not all that close. But you do find groups beginning to, to go from the Ardbert Suite to the cellar, or from the cellar to the Ardbert Suite, and then up to the Foggy Manor. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then on the other side of the country, in Halifax, at almost the exact time, another club emerges doing almost exactly the same thing called 777 Barrington Street. And they had absolutely no idea what was going on in Vancouver because uh, there was no national jazz broadcasting. Um, there was sort of no national jazz media. There was no real way other than the exchange of musicians to find out what was happening uh, on the other side of the country. And that just didn't end up happening. So the Halifax Club emerged in isolation, doing almost exactly the same thing for almost exactly the same reasons. It's interesting, though, that it happens independently and uh, of Vancouver. I mean, <laughs> really, it's pretty much as far apart as you can get in the country that this is happening uh, independent of each other. And what does that say then, or if anything, about the nature of jazz music in Canada more broadly and the type of people who are involved in jazz? Well, I mean, at the time, I think it says a lot about Canada and its lack of preparedness or sort of lack of ability to respond to changing cultural interests. Because again, this was predominantly about jazz. These are the musicians that founded the club, but there was also linkages into other developments in culture following World War II that, again, is going to take us into the 1960s, and we all understand uh, how that sits. I think we also have to remember how small cities outside of Toronto and Montreal were during this period. I mean, in 1955, there's not a lot going on uh, in Halifax or in Vancouver or in Edmonton. So it's sort of not a surprise that there aren't enough club spaces or sort of willing restaurants that would accommodate musicians walking in and saying, hey, can we turn this into something of a jazz club? It was surprising when I first sort of mapped this out and looked at it. And then I went, well, yeah, kind of, of course. Yeah, so you're right that there would have to be spaces for it. I find it interesting, though, that they're creating their own versus, as you said, maybe going to other places that exist and playing live music. Because certainly one of the things that, has always been popular for establishments, it seems to me, is to have live music to draw in crowds. So what is the dynamic there at play in which these musicians can't find other places to play? Does it speak to the nature of live music in Canada at the time or the, the, the type of entertainment that restaurants want to bring in, the status of jazz? It's just why, yeah, why are they having to create their own spaces when there is such a long history of live music in a variety of space. So that's more or less exactly what happened in Toronto and Montreal. There were enough cafes and bars and restaurants that musicians found places to play jazz, even though there might not have always been a dedicated jazz club. I mean, often there was, but not always, and certainly not enough jazz clubs to support all of the musicians that wanted to play. So that's kind of what went on in Toronto and Montreal. But... I doubt that there were enough venues in places like Vancouver and Halifax that would have supported the number of musicians who wanted to play. Like I said, in Vancouver, they already had well-established clubs like the Palomar and the Cave and Izzy's and the Commodore and uh, the Panorama Room at the Hotel Vancouver. So there were spaces where this jazz-inflected popular music occurred, but those jobs were taken already. A lot of them were jobs that required um, skills at sight reading and often skills at uh, playing more than one instrument, which not all of these young musicians had. And the young musicians were also really interested in playing proper, improvised, 
not commercial, you might not like this very much. Modern jazz that, like I said, came out of bebop. And that's never been a particularly popular musical form. So I can imagine, you know, walking into a restaurant saying, hey, would you mind if uh, my friends and I, we've got this quintet we're going to play this evening. And then they started to play bebop. That's not going to go over very well with the vast majority of uh, the Canada's middle class population, the kind of people who would be going to restaurants. Uh, and the restaurant's owner, of course, as you said, would be the, the restaurant's goal, as you said, would be to draw in a crowd. Um, and the sort of music that was coming out of these cooperatives has never been the sort of music that really drew a crowd. So I think there was a bit of a knowing on the part of the musicians that this wasn't going to be popular music. I always joke when people ask what I do for a living. I say, well, I lecture on popular music and unpopular music. <laughs> And, and yeah, just kind of a lack of space. I mean, later on in Vancouver, there becomes a coffee shop called the Espresso, which functions in the evenings as sort of a de facto hangout and jam space for the studio musicians downtown. So that functions a little bit in the way that you're suggesting. But that takes a little while to come along and both surprising and unsurprising to me all at once. Right. And then presumably, though, because of that, one of the other dynamics here is the rise of recorded music and the popularity of albums in the 50s and 60s, certainly popular before, but really an explosion in the second half of the 20th century, that this is a source of revenue that, as a result, I assume these musicians are not taking advantage of if they have this ideology of the pure jazz, the live experience, the improvisation, that they're not going through and commercializing outside of just the club as well. Well, like I said, there was no domestic recording industry right. in for jazz during this period. I go on at length about that in the book and sort of provide a variety of exceptions to that rule. But, yeah, I mean, I think if there had been a domestic recording industry for jazz, things might have shaped up a little differently. Um, but we don't really begin to see that until the 1970s. And that's again quite limited examples and it doesn't take off in Canada for real until the 80s and 90s and again most a lot of that is through cooperative jazz labels like Cornerstone and Unity um, just in time as well but some of the biggest jazz labels in this country have been cooperatives as well. So again it, it fits with the overall genre and the way in which it's operated for a long time really. Yeah exactly. Some of these musicians did go on to have, uh, you know, lucrative careers, both in jazz and outside of jazz. You know, Terry Clark and Don Thompson, um, you know, got launched onto international careers. Uh, great many of the other musicians that come up in the book, anybody that's kind of into jazz will go, oh, yeah, wow, I didn't know that's where they started out. Uh, and some of the players, uh, Dale Hillary, who's the alto player on the cover of the book, um, moved to Toronto and ended up having a career don't know how lucrative it was, but in, in rock and roll, he played with Lighthouse for a long time. So there was kind of a, a moving out. Like these players didn't stay in these clubs. They learned to play in them, and that's really what they were for. They were sort of Terry Clark calls uh, the seller of our school of music. But you're 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, and then many of them move on to other things, move on to American careers, move on to uh, careers in education, move on to careers in commercial music, whether that's rock music or whether that's playing in uh, in studios situations for the CBC in Toronto. So not all of these players sort of continued to be quite such a penurious existence. Um, but the clubs themselves, because again, there were these DIY cooperative efforts, they were about learning. And about playing, I mean, there's a great deal of experience has to be gathered before you can embark on a, on a professional career. And without these clubs, many of these musicians just wouldn't have been able to find that. 
So to make a bit of a comparison to something like Second City for comedians, you create this small space where people can come in and, and hone the craft before moving on to larger venues and, and more commercial, profitable enterprises. It, just, it makes a lot of sense from an artistic standpoint. Uh, and if you can make a business out of it, even better, right? Yeah. I mean, none of these clubs really functioned as businesses. They were all not-for-profits. But, but sure. yeah, I mean, they were essentially places to go and try things out and for, for a supportive audience that was interested in what you were doing. Try things out, learn, get some experience. I guess the Second City example is uh, not a bad parallel, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the actual people then who are playing, because you've mentioned that you've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of the people who played at the cellar. How do they look back on it? Is there Are there trends that come up in these conversations over and over, certain words that they use to express their time there? Because uh, I, I just I would think, uh, having done some oral history myself, that oftentimes you can find these trends when you're talking to people that, uh, especially with something like this that is maybe more than just the music, that people have similar experiences there. But I, I'm really curious to find out what the experience for you was in, in conducting these interviews, having the chance to talk to these people. Everybody, I can say universally, people's remembrances were positive, even if, you know, occasionally uh, stressful situations had occurred to them during their time there or that they'd witnessed things or whatever. But yeah, universally positive, universally a sense that this was, in case of the Vancouver Club, a particularly the only place of its kind for people to hang out, that it was uh, uh, an oasis, that it was a school of music, that it was this really welcoming and inclusive community, uh, that it was collaborative and interdisciplinary, um, and that, yeah, it, it kind of created a space within which these people, and I talked to audience members as well as musicians, so some of the people who are having these remembrances went on to do entirely different things with their lives, but it was sort of a very significant period in their lives where they got to explore a little bit about, about who they were, maybe, or, or what they were interested in, in, in a space that encouraged that. And what sort of things would they say in terms of the experience of it? Obviously positive, but are there certain things in terms of like, you know, because I, I, I always think of you know these sorts of clubs, you know, smoky rooms and uh, you know, dimly lit, sort of a dinginess, but it's an exciting dinginess. Like those sorts of sensory cues, do those come up a lot for them? Yeah, some of them did. I mean, Terry Clark called it the uh, cinema verite version of a jazz club. He talked a lot about the cigarette smoke because he didn't smoke, so he was really quite bothered by it. It was a, a basement windowless room and everybody smoked like chimneys. <laughs> so what that would have been like. The cellar was apparently the first place in Vancouver to ever sell pizza by the slice, and a lot of people remembered the smell of that as they would come down the stairs. Um, John Daw recalled the club as being, you know, somewhat rustic because all of the uh, the furniture had been built by the members and everything like that. A, a lot of a sense of it being um, what one would expect a jazz club to look like, I guess. Same thing with the Halifax Club. They built their own stage and had their own music stands, and people had to come down to go into that, but... Most of the, the remembrances were, were about how they felt being in the space and how the clubs enabled them to become something, whether that was you know a better musician or a better artist or simply a more informed, more interesting person. And that was universal across everybody I talked to for, for all of the clubs. Then what does that tell us, do you think, about the music 
if the, what they're remembering are the sights, the sounds, the feelings, does it have any commentary? Does that tell us anything about the music in any way? Uh, I mean, I, I guess it tells us something about jazz music and jazz musicians that, again, this was a club designed by jazz musicians to focus on jazz music, and it did a really good job of that. The musicians that came out of this and the musicians that were hosted there are full on. So that music that is perhaps um, considered difficult, you know, I think a knee-jerk reaction amongst a lot of people these days is that jazz is uh, is difficult music to listen to or that it's not a lot of fun or that you have to know something in order to get into it. Well, the music that went on at the cellar was, you know, absolutely cutting edge for its time, a lot of it, but the remembrances of people are not that it was scary music or difficult music or music that they didn't want to listen to, but that it created this this space for for artistic exploration and, and freedom. And freedom comes up a lot too. Like the musicians were aware that what they were constructing was a space where they could play the music they wanted to play for the people that wanted to listen to it. And if you didn't want to listen to it, you didn't have to come and that was fine by them. But that said, a lot of people came. You know, for a decade, people came. And I think that that says something hopeful, maybe, <laughs> um, for for young players playing interesting, non-commercial music today, that if you create a space where it can exist and where people can find it, people might actually like it. And especially today, where you have so much more opportunity at outlets for it. I mean, you can self-create and find audiences, not just locally, but around the world, relatively easily, whereas these individuals back in the 50s and 60s you're looking locally and having to get people out into the, the physical space now you can use the digital space to find audiences in a variety of different ways yeah i guess so i mean I, i'm not sure that the kind of thing that the seller and these other clubs represent could ever have occurred or could occur in a digital space because it right. was very much about creating a scene and that's about um human interaction if you're just talking about putting your music out there or selling records, yeah, I guess that's gotten easier. But this was more about creating community. Mm -hmm. um, and communities do exist online, but they're, they're different sorts of communities than the ones that these represent. Absolutely. And the other thing, though, you, you mentioned that you, it got people out for a decade. What happened that the seller started to decline and eventually go away? Why? Did that happen? What prompted it? Because, again, you're creating a strong community, the strong sense of what's going on, and then it sort of dies. Obviously, communities and these sorts of things, relationships, there's an organic nature to them. They come, they go. Uh, but with the example of the seller, what ends up happening there in the 60s? Uh, it's sort of a combination of things. I call it scenic entropy in the book. I mean, all scenes come and go. And... Um, a couple of things lined up for the seller, the first of which is that it was weirdly sort of a victim of its own success. So because it beds in so quickly into sort of Vancouver culture and, and becomes an important site for musicians and for audiences, um, we have these other clubs. So the, the Black Spot Flat Five, which is the same club, just at different times, um, which was initially begun just like the seller was to give the younger players a place to play, uh, ends up becoming quite an important club, doing more or less the same thing what the seller is doing. But now there are two different places you can go. So if you're an artist coming into town, um, you know, there's the seller or there's the flat five where you're going to go and play. Uh, there's a coffee house that opens up called the Inquisition which did uh, high-profile folk music and high-profile jazz music. Uh, it was run by a guy named Howie Bateman, 
who is um, important on the, uh, you probably know Howie from your work on the CBC. He was an important um, part of the Vancouver sort of music scene, and he was a host on a, a variety of CBC programs. But they would get in big artists. They had Stan Getz in, and they had Miles Davis in. Um, places like The Cave and Izzy's begin to get in big-name American jazz artists more frequently, people like Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington. So while there's a bigger audience for jazz in Vancouver than there was before, perhaps, that audience is now scattered or fractured over a variety of different venue spaces, which means uh, it gets harder to compete for an audience uh, if you're a club like The Cellar. It's also harder to compete for musicians, um, both sort of traveling ones, but even domestic ones. If you need to, to field a quintet or a quartet or you're looking for a rhythm section, that bass player might now have four different gig offers rather than one. And the guys that started The Cellar, who were all, you know, fairly young at the time, 10 years later, not so young anymore, uh, have got family obligations and, and other things that lead a lot of them away from being able to donate uh, or dedicate so much of their time to low-paying or unpaid musical activity and into day jobs because, you know, life just uh, does that to you sometimes. And then if I think I've referred to popular culture in the 1950s being quite jazz inflected. You know, this you can think of sort of the Rat Pack or big bands and things that are jazzy without necessarily being jazz. By the 1960s, this sense of jazz or jazz-like sounds being at the heart of popular culture has changed. And we're very much moving into the 1960s counterculture rock and roll, which might not be yet sort of the beating pulse of mass popular culture, but certainly it's where the heart of the scene is seen to be. So if you're just looking for the most exciting or um, of the moment place to situate yourself, it's not going to be a jazz club anymore in 1964. It's going to have something to do with rock and roll or the counterculture in some other sort of way. So these things all just kind of combined, and the club had basically just run its course. And do we see the similar thing going on across the country in the other clubs? And in terms of, you know, we have a national conversation of sorts in the 50s. Does the decline happen nationally as well? It does, yeah. The uh, Yardbird Suite uh, manages to make it through to 1967, but it has to change venue a few times, and it closes down for a little while, and then reopens. Uh, and then in Halifax, kind of a, a similar story but there you have, um, again, a smaller pool of musicians than you had in Vancouver. It continues on for a little while, but a lot of the main players that had started that club ended up leaving Halifax to go on to have different careers. And again, it was just kind of a bit of entropy, not enough um, impetus to keep the club going, not enough uh, young musicians really interested in, in, in dedicating the amount of time to it. So yeah, just and again, times have changed since the 60s. Maybe there were more venues uh, available, and again, the sorts of music that would be attractive to an audience on a, on, a, on a given Sunday night has tipped, I think, at, by, by this point, away from jazz and towards different sounds. So, in general, when people get the book, and we, of course, will encourage everybody to get the book, how does this fit into the larger story of the 1950s, 1960s in Vancouver and, and across the country? Where, where does Live at the Cellar fit in? What does it give us as a source for this era? Well, I think it might function as a, as a bit of a case study um, or, or a bit of a bit of evidence towards what, what the Canadian cultural condition maybe looked like in that period. Uh, I know you've done a lot of work on the CBC. The CBC was you know, really, really important to uh, the Cellar Club in particular, 
uh, less important to the other clubs because there wasn't really a national radio conversation going on about jazz at that time. And later on, of course, that changes when we have things like uh, After Hours. I think also it's interesting to look at the conditions, you know, the urban conditions outside of Toronto and Montreal, which we talk about uh, regularly and we all have a sense of. But outside of Toronto and Montreal, what were the urban conditions for the culture that developed post-World War II? You know, the, the painters and the writers and the poets and the musicians that would lead us through the 1960s. Where did they come from and what sort of backgrounds were those like? And if we often talk about being able to tell Canadian stories against, you know, the looming backdrop of American stories, particularly when it comes to popular culture. Well, what about regional stories uh, in Canada against the occasionally looming backdrop of, of Toronto and Montreal? And particularly when it comes to jazz. Well, any popular music, really. But there's a sense that if you're not well recorded, you're not that important somehow. And I think this book maybe provides evidence that that's really very much not the case. I think that's a great way to put it. And, and I think you're right, especially on that last point, that there is a privileging of that what is recorded. Uh, and I think it, certainly in my case, as someone who, who does study radio it's it's because i can hear it right? like that's you know the ephemeral nature of this sort of stuff makes it so hard to study which is why again i think this is such an important volume and, and something that's really a key source for looking at the music scene in general because that live element of it and the stuff that isn't recorded you're right just tends to be lost to, to history, the ephemeral, I tell my students in my radio courses all the time, you know, this ephemeral quality of it goes out and then it's just out in the world and it's gone forever. That, trying to capture what that is or what that was and why it was important is a very valuable resource. Yeah, I explained it to somebody at a, a talk I gave sometime last week that this kind of research and this book is sort of like looking at a pond, seeing the ripples, but not being able to find the pebble. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that is a very, very good way to put it. And again, the book is Live at the Cellar, Vancouver's Iconic Jazz Club and the Canadian Cooperative Jazz Scene in the 1950s and 60s. Again, from our friends over at UBC Press. So do go get it. Paperback version is available, which we are always excited about uh, on this show because just personally, I don't like when I read books. I, I don't know what you're like, Marion, but I don't like holding hardcover books when I'm reading them. Like if I'm on a plane or reading in bed or whatever it is, just holding hardcover I don't like. So whenever I see paperback, I am very excited. I, I, I do enjoy holding hardcovers, but I like okay. that paperbacks cost less money and therefore more people can hold them. <laughs> Which, of course, is the whole point of this. So, uh, so do go and check out the book, absolutely. And we uh, think that you will enjoy it. Uh, and if you had a chance, of course, to go to the events last week, certainly you are familiar with Marion and her work. And Marion, we thank you so much for taking the time all the way across the ocean. I know it's tough with time zones and, and that kind of stuff. So we thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on the show. If you have any questions or comments for the show, do hit us up at HistorySlam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever it is you get your shows. Please just do subscribe and give us a rating and a like, all that fun stuff that helps with the circulation. And while you're at it, why not check out the History Chats 
podcast, the other series we have going here at Active History. These are talks, conference proceedings that we have in our archives that we are releasing every Saturday. We started back in the spring with a series from the University of Toronto Canada 150 conference that they had there back in 2017. And now we're going through and releasing some of the talks that we have in the archive. So please do subscribe there, like, and all that fun stuff. You can find the History Chats wherever it is you get your podcast. And again, they're released every Saturday morning. So you can look forward to kicking off your weekend with a fresh History Chat. As for the History Slam, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.